Thank you, Brother Richard. If you have your Bibles, you can open them or open the Bible app on your device to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Last time we had the pleasure of looking at the first 13, or two weeks ago we had the pleasure of looking at the first 13 verses. This morning, God willing, we will look at the remainder of this chapter of Mark. So Mark chapter 1, I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter as we begin together. 1-1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. He preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to them. To him. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother, who were with them in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed them. Verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately... There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed. And so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. And at once His fame spread everywhere through all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
Verse 29, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also. For that is what I came out to do. And he went through all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Verse 40, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling to him, said, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out, began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news. So Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in a desolate place, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Father God, we come to You and we thank You for Your revealed Word. You are kind to give us a revelation. You're kind to give us Your Word. You are very kind to have Your Spirit, Father, carry this Word from ancient to contemporary and keep it for Your church. And so, Father, we come as those who are gathered now around Your Word, trusting that Your Spirit will use Your Word to strengthen our faith. Father, we thank You that You revealed Yourself in Your Word, but You have revealed Yourself in Your Son, Jesus. And so we have a sacred moment now where the revelation of Your Word given in Scripture meets the revelation of Christ and the story of what's happening. And Father, we thank You for that. And so I ask, I ask that You would use this time to take those who are in darkness, not following Christ, have never answered the call to follow. Father, would You be kind and by Your Spirit move them from darkness to light this morning in the hearing of Your Word, the Gospel. And Father, for those who are believers, I pray, Father, that You would use this Word to strengthen our faith. Give us more perseverance. Encourage us. Lord, use this by Your Spirit to build up Your church. We pray for that. These are big prayers we ask. These are big things we trust in. But we come to You believing that You can do these very things You've promised. We ask them all to You, Father. We ask them through Jesus, Your Son, 
our Savior, our Lord and our Master, and ask now that you would be kind to bring them about by your Spirit. Amen. Alright, Jesus, God who draws near. That's the title, here's a takeaway. Jesus dares to identify with broken sinners and loves them enough to command them to follow. He dares to identify with broken sinners and He loves them enough to command them to follow. So as we're walking through here, those first uh, 13 verses which we looked at last time, what did we see? Is Mark giving us Peter's account? What are we learning about Jesus? Well, first we know that this man in his early 30s is from Nazareth. So we know that he's fully human. But we also know from the very outset, the very first verse, that he is God. And then we saw there in the account of his baptism that this Jesus will enter down into the judgment of God and that this Jesus will raise, will be uh, risen to the approval of the Father, and He will give righteousness. And then we saw there that Jesus, the second Adam, will go out into the wilderness and endure testing. And unlike the first Adam who fell, representing every single one of us, this Jesus will withstand and perfectly keep the law. So from the outset, we have the incarnate God, God made man. From the outset, we have the Trinity shown to us and that this is a working of the Trinity. From the outset, we have that He will save His people from His sins. And from the outset, we have the great promise that He will bring a perfected life to His people in the culmination of the kingdom. Verse 14, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. He's proclaiming the gospel of God. And he's saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Alright, so we have Jesus doing what? Where he's proclaiming. Some of your translations, I would think KJV, RSV, NAS, they're going to probably have this not proclaiming, but preaching. You can use it interchangeably there. He's preaching. He's spreading the good news. This is how the kingdom will spread. From the very outset of Jesus Christ, this, the kingdom will spread through the telling of good news. This could be a preacher in a pulpit. It could be one co-worker sitting at the break, in the break room with another co-worker. It could be you having coffee with a friend proclaiming the good news. This is how the kingdom will spread. And as He proclaims, what does He proclaim? Well, the central claim that He is making is this. He declares the good news of God. That's the Gospel. The good news of God. That's the central claim. He is claiming. This man from Nazareth, he stands up and says, I have good news from God to all the humanity. That's his claim. The claim is that he has good news. The content is this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is now, and the kingdom of God is here. Now again, if you've been around Scripture a whole lot, 
been in church for a long time, you hear stuff like that, and you don't even real you forget how weird that is, right? Somebody stand up and say, The time is now fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, right? That's what he did. Now imagine if I'd said a, a, a lot lesser claim. I stood up here and said to you, It's finally come, the circus is here. Then the next question, that's a lot lesser claim, but the next question you're going to say is, Where? Right? Where? You all might say it's back there on the kids' hall, right? But where? Where is the circus? Well, Jesus stands up. Now catch the scene. He stands up to a whole bunch of people and He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here. What are they going to ask? Exactly what you asked when I told you the circus is here. Where? And all Jesus is doing is standing there in His body. And that's the point. In the body of Jesus, the incarnate God, is the kingdom of God. With the coming of the King is the kingdom. He is the kingdom. Claim good news from God. Content. I am the kingdom. Application. Well, he gives us an application. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the chief kingdom exercise. What does it mean to repent? Well, it means to turn around. So implicit within that is the idea that you're going the wrong way. It's that moment when you're going down the road and you're thinking to yourself, this doesn't feel exactly right. And you turn on uh, the directions on your phone or your GPS and it says, in the next 1,000 feet, make a U-turn, right? That's what repentance is. It is saying, this is not the right way. I need to stop and go back the other way. At the very core of Christianity is the claim that a massive reconstruction project is needed. Okay, so you turn around. Now what? Now you believe. You repent and you believe. You believe in what? You believe in Jesus. How do you believe in Jesus? You follow Jesus. He is the good news. To believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. Christians are those who have repented and believed, and Christians are those who are repenting and believing. Repentance, repent, to repent and to believe is to Christianity what push-ups and pull-ups are to the army. You don't get through basic training without figuring out how to do some push-ups and some pull-ups. But you also don't succeed in the rest of your army career if you never do push-ups and pull-ups again. You continue to do them. That's the kingdom exercise. That's why at the very center of our service, there's a time of repentance and belief, confession and pardon. That's what we do. We are Christians. We repent and we believe. So the message of Jesus is there is good news. He is the kingdom come. And the proper response is to turn and follow Him. Now folks, that's a radical claim for a guy with no credentials. And that's exactly what Jesus asked. But if that's not radical enough, wait till you see what it means to follow this Jesus. So He proclaims good news. 
Next, Jesus demands that we follow. Jesus demands that we follow. We're going to see this in verse 16 through 20. Verse 16, passing along side the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. So we're going to look at the followers of Jesus. One of the first things you find out about the followers of Jesus is it's costly. And you actually can find that back in verse 14. Verse 14 starts with, And after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested. Well, we'll find out in chapter 6 that John will not only be arrested, but he will shortly after be executed. And why was John arrested and executed? Because John stood up for the definition of marriage, for the sanctity of marriage. That's why he was executed. At the outset, following Christ is costly. And John the Baptist, the first follower of Christ, saw that. So the first thing is it's costly. Second, following Christ means to give up control. Now remember, this is Peter's account being written by Mark. So this is the first time we get introduced to Peter. And how does Peter explain to us how it went down? Not a whole lot of details, right? I was out there with my brother. We're in a boat. Jesus came and said, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And we followed. Unreal. Right? You want more details. Did he tell you any more to that? What were the promises? What were the conditions? Tell me, you must not have been a very good fisherman. You're just looking for something, right? Nothing like that. All we hear is, we went. To follow Jesus is to give up control. You can imagine for Simon and Andrew, they knew at least how they were going to make money. They knew where they fit in this world. We are fishermen. What do we do? We get up. And we fish. And just like that, Jesus calls and everything is turned upside down. What control they at least thought they had was gone. And now Jesus owns them. He owns control. To follow Jesus is to give up control. Third, you're going to see that it is to live counterculturally. Look at verse 19. And going a, a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and, his, and John, his brother, who are in their boat mending the nets. So another set of brothers, another set of fishermen. And immediately, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And they followed him. I want you to notice here the emphasis on the father. The emphasis on the father. This emphasis, I believe, is there to express to us the countercultural nature of what they did in following Jesus. Now, I've got to be honest with you, growing up in a Western culture, this doesn't strike me, at least on face value, as that countercultural. Uh, but knowing a little bit about ancient Near East, especially during the Bible times, I, I realize this is somewhat, but I've also, we also have a gift in our congregation. We have two gentlemen who didn't grow up in a Western culture. So I called them this week. I called Ramon, who grew up in Egypt, and I called Shankar, who grew up in India, and I said, let me tell this story to you. You tell me how it strikes you. Um, very helpful. Ramon uh, expressed to me, he said, Tim, in my culture, even today, if your family has a business, and, and you decide to go outside of that business, you have 
in, in that sense rejected your family. The culture will not understand why you would go off and try to do something different. Helpful. Shankar said, they left their father in the boat with the hired servants. You don't get a guy, especially if he has no resume, let him come up to you and leave your daddy in the boat with the hired servants and walk off. You might as well just put a sign up that says, I'm rejecting my family. And he said, in my culture, that's a huge deal. These men endured major insults. They went against their culture to follow Jesus. I read an interesting article this week where a a gentleman was arguing that churches in America have for too long tried to look attractive and relevant to the culture. Instead, he says that the church must be willing and ready to be, in his words, a colony of resident foreigners within the larger unbelieving culture. The church must be ready to be a colony of residents, so they're still living here, but foreigners. They're different. They've got to be ready to do that. Folks, the bad news, and you do know, if, if this strikes you as news, we've got trouble. The bad news is that right now in our land, we are watching at breakneck speeds a major moral shift in the broader culture. It is phenomenal. It makes the changes of the 60s look light and long. And it's sad. It will leave many lives devastated in its wake. I promise you. But the welcome news is that with it, God has been merciful to bring along with it the death of a superficial, light-hearted Christianity that was never Christian to begin with. The first followers of Christ knew what it was to live counterculturally. Why would we expect to live any differently? Why are we shocked when the first follower of Jesus had his head taken off at a drunken party because he stood up for the sanctity of marriage. Let us not be shocked. Are you ready? Are you willing? Are you ready to be strange in a culture that will not recognize you? Lastly, those who follow Jesus are called to service. Jesus tells them to put down their nets. Why? Because He's going to make them what? Fishers of men. That's exactly right. He does not simply call them to follow Him. He calls them to service. Each of these men will give their lives. Every one of them. You know, sometimes we think of the apostles and we think that they kind of spent their lives kind of all huddled together, doing life together together. You know, you always see the pictures. It's like 12 of them. They can barely get it on the portrait, so they have to make it a landscape. And they're all hanging around together, right? Um, That would have been a very, very, very small part of their lives. That only lasted for a few years. The disciples were very quickly scattered abroad, and they endured very uh, tough lives of suffering. Of the four men mentioned here, Two will die just like their Lord crucified. 
One on an X-shaped cross and one upside down. The other one will be the first one martyred. He's actually recorded. James is recorded in Acts. He will be beheaded. And the other one will die all alone on a secluded island. That is what it landed for these fishermen. It amazes me how far apart they died. Andrew died all the way in Greece. Paul was, died in Italy, uh, in Rome. And then James dies all the way back in Jerusalem. They were spread all the way across. It's costly. You'll give up control. You will live counterculturally. And you will be called to give and to serve. Do we believe this? Do we believe this when we pray, God, make my child a follower of Jesus? Honest to goodness. Are you ready for that? Or do we want our kids to just be moral, healthy, and happy? I'm telling you, if that's your goals, there are a lot of other options that are a lot easier than Christianity. Christianity, from its inception, has demanded active, committed following. Alright, this kind of gets us to our next point. You know, when someone asks you to do something, your reaction to what they're requesting is going to be tempered by multiple things, but especially two things. Number one, what is the nature of the request? And number two, what is the authority of the person requesting it? So for example, if somebody asks you to turn on a light switch that is right beside you, i got a funny feeling you're not going to think much through their authority over you, etc. They could be a five-year-old and you're like, it's right here, turn it on, right? It's not that big of a deal. Why? Because the nature of the request is so uh, demands so little from you. On the other hand, let's say you're on your way home today and some stranger pulls up next to your car um, and, and tells you to pull over on the side of the road. You're not going to do that. Um, if you are going to do that, please talk to us. That's not a good idea. Um, you're not going to do that. Why? They have no authority to be demanding you to pull over on the side of the road. And there's lots of risk involved in that. But if a policeman asks you to pull over on the side of the road, you are going to do that. I hope you're going to do that, right? Why? Because the, the, the demand, the request is the exact same request. What's different? The level of authority. Well, understand what Jesus is asking. The level of request is beyond the pale. It is so incredible. If you throw it on a scale, it just dumps way down here. How can you ever ask all of that? Right? Unless there's an immense authority to balance it. Mark assumes this. You can tell it and how it is given over to us. He assumes this is going to be an issue for us. How can you ask this unless you are this? Look with me. Point three, Jesus demonstrates His authority. Verse 21. They went into Capernaum, 
And immediately, on this app, don't you love how often Mark uses the word immediately? I just love it. Uh, it's like it wakes you up as you're going across it. Immediately, that's right. And immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority. Not as the scribes. Ouch. Verse 23, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere through all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her, and he came out and he took her by the hand. He lifted her up, and the fever left her. She began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. He would not permit... That's authority. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, Everyone's looking for you. And he said, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. That is why I came out. And he went through all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus demonstrates his authority. He teaches as one with authority. This point is made explicitly twice in this passage. He has control over demons. He shows his authority over them and they recognize it. They recognize it and he heals. And how does he heal? Hey, take this and call me in 10 days. He heals with what type of effect? Immediate effect. Well, who can do such things? Well, the answer is straight there in the text. And don't look past who gives the response. It's somewhat ironic that in the book of Mark, it's an intentional irony, that one of the most explicit statements about who Jesus is will come from demons. Look at verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He's a man. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And He's God. This is an indictment on all of those who for the rest of the book will not look at Jesus and call Him who He is, the Son of God. Even the demons realize who He is. He is the Holy One of God. But it is also a warning. Mere confession is not enough. Confession that Jesus is the Son of God and refusal to bow the knee 
is nothing short of demonic. So, while Jesus requests from us an incredible amount of commitment, he argues from Mark that he has the authority to balance that request with the fact that he is God. His teaching is unlike anything they've ever heard. He heals. The demons recognize him. We can see prophetic texts like the ones we read together out of Isaiah where this Jesus, this Messiah is bringing deliverance. He's bringing radical change. And we can find hope that He will also change the people. I love that part of what we read together. You shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of God. It's exactly where the text takes us. Before we read the next couple of verses there in Mark 14, I'm going to have you go back to Leviticus 13. So if you can either turn there or tap there. Alright, here God gives very detailed instructions to Moses concerning those who've contracted leprosy. This was a very dangerous disease and those who had it were considered unclean and they were further considered a big danger to the rest of the community because they could give this to the rest of the community. So God is kind to His people. He gives them instructions. I want you to see with me in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45 through 46. So if you do a Bible reading plan on an annual basis and you're in the midst of Leviticus 13... Uh, uh, it's kind of 13, 14, and 15. Uh, that type of stuff just turns my stomach. Now, my wife, she deals with this type of stuff. She's fine with it. I just think it's sick. Um, so it's good for me to read stuff like Mark to realize there's a purpose in this. This isn't just gross. Um, so that said, I'm going to skip through some of the gross stuff because I just can't do it. All right, uh, verse 45. The leprous person who has this disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. Just think about it. He's going to wear some torn up clothes, let his hair and his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has a disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. You get leprosy, this is your lot. It's the safest, kindest thing they could do for you and the rest of the community. They had no way to heal it. You were a danger to everybody else. They put you outside of the camp and they come up with ways that people, as they get near you, will know, stay away. Unclean. The person with leprosy was unclean and they were untouchable. They could be healed. It did happen that people could go from being leprous to not having leprosy. They could go from being unclean to clean. And so Leviticus 14 gives us a whole set of guidelines of what's supposed to happen then. Let me just give you a quick hit on them. Look at verse 1 of Leviticus 14. The Lord spoke to Moses saying... This shall be the law of the, lep- uh, of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. So this is a person who had leprosy but is now clean. He shall be brought to the priest 
And the priest shall go out of the camp. Priest got to go out to where he is. And the priest shall look. Then if the case of the leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to, and then the rest all the way down there to verse 8 is telling them all the different offerings and all he needs to uh, uh, have sacrificed. Into verse 8. And after that, he may come into the camp. In the event that a person who had leprosy was actually cleansed, then they could go from being outside the camp to brought inside the camp. How the priest goes outside the camp, he looks at him, he does not dare touch him. If he touches him, he himself will be unclean. But he goes outside the camp, he looks at him, he declares him clean, he does some rituals, gives some offerings, and then the leper can come back in the camp. Again, while the law gives ample instruction about what to do if a person happens to go from unclean to clean, the law gives no explanation as to how that will happen. The silence is assumed that happens only because God makes that happen. That is something for God alone to do. All the priest can do is declare him as clean. Leprosy was an incredibly sad disease. It ruined lives. It ruined families. All that in mind, back to Mark. Mark chapter 1 verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now listen to that. Just take all that import you just got and read again. A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. This is a shocking account. Why is Jesus talking to a leper? Jesus is not a priest. And even if he was a priest, this isn't a leper who was diseased and who is now clean, just asking to be declared clean. Uh Uh-uh. This is a diseased, unclean leper asking to be made clean. Does he not know that is something for only God alone to do? Story gets wilder. Jesus doesn't explain to him he's not a priest. Jesus doesn't uh, say to him, well, you're still unclean. Jesus reaches out and touches him. But now wait a second. If Jesus touches the unclean leper, the unclean leper is going to make Jesus unclean. But that's the exact opposite of what Mark says happens. Mark says that what happens is that Jesus touches the unclean leper and the unclean leper doesn't make Jesus unclean. Jesus takes the unclean leper and He makes him clean. This is immense authority. The Levitical law 
explain how to recognize when a person had gone from being unclean to clean, but it has no power to make a man clean. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth can touch a man and take him from unclean to clean and not himself be made unclean. Jesus can make unclean people clean. Oh, that's good news. Oh, that is really good news. Leprosy is to the body what sin is to the soul. It spreads. It brings pain. It brings numbness. It deforms. It ruins. It wrecks lives. The Bible is clear that every man and woman born under Adam is born with a diseased heart. Far from being pure and innocent, we are born into sin, diseased and broken. If every soul in this room could cry out, it would cry out in unison, unclean, unclean. So where is our hope? What hope do we have to be healed? Dare we ask Jesus, the Son of God, to come near our brokenness, near our uncleanliness? Won't He make Himself unclean? Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. He's saying, the author here is saying, look, we've got something far better than to partake with, far better than they did in the Old Testament. They couldn't even eat those sacrifices. Why couldn't they eat them? Because they were burned outside the camp. That's where their sacrifices went. Verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify. That means to make clean the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and let's bear the reproach He endured. Jesus has come and suffered outside the camp. In order to do what? In order to make us clean. How does He do that? By His own blood. On the cross of Christ, Jesus reached out and identified with our diseased, sin-wrecked souls. And in so doing, He endured the wrath of God as He was treated as unclean on our behalf But amazingly, He was raised to new life and in so doing offers us full cleansing. Jesus healed the leper leper in such a compassionate way. He touched him. You've got to know if you're that leper. On one sense, that has to shock your system. You haven't been touched in years. And someone touches you. But can you imagine the unbelievable shame? Like, no, 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 you have no idea what you're about to touch. I gotta believe. 
in a room this size. Some of us feel that way. You know your most secret, shameful moment. You know your most heinous sin. And you're saying, Jesus, if you could just look at me, that would be fine. Just talk to me. But don't touch it. And Jesus is saying to you, as clear as He can, I have identified with you. I climbed up on the cross and I was executed by God the Father in order to pay for your sin. I will touch you and I will make you clean. Jesus Christ comes and He calls out good news. He is good news. The good news is He will heal. He has the authority to heal. And all of those who are healed by Jesus will follow Him in radical commitment of faith.